0: Welcome to episode 54 of History Does You. Today we'll be looking at the Battle of Aachen, as well exploring different aspects of the American Army during World War II. And this is a little bit of a different episode because there isn't an interview, and it's kind of funny because I was trying to figure out what to do for next episode since I hadn't done a few interviews, and then I sort of realized that I had just completed a extensive six-month research project on the Battle of Aachen and thought it would be good to dedicate an episode to that because... I think it would be good to get it to a broader audience. And actually, storytelling podcasts are one of my favorite types. And I do enjoy doing interviews. It just its a lot easier in terms of doing that way as opposed to trying to do a whole host of research and writing and all that to create the story type of podcasts that are the most popular. And I just don't have the resource to do that. But again, so this is a little bit of a different episode And whenever you do a really extensive research project like this, you become an expert in that particular topic or field, I think. Whenever you go through all the sources, when you go through hundreds and hundreds of pages of after-action reports and primary sources and all that, you become an expert. So I will not say that I am an expert per se, but I can say that I know a lot maybe than the average historian might about this particular topic. and. So I had a personal sort of connection to not Aachen, not that I have family member, but there's a museum around 20 minutes from where I live that is dedicated solely to the First Infantry Division, and they have an archive and they have all the after action reports from the World War One up until now, and that would be cool to kind of base most of my research on that. So I was able to do that, and it's always really cool experience to be able to sort of relive history through the lens of people that actually fought it and all these years later. And the reports weren't actually published or they were classified for almost 20 years. They weren't published. The majority of them weren't published until 1962, which I thought was kind of interesting, but it's helpful that the U.S. Army was so meticulous during World War II in terms of the way they wrote after-action reports for pretty much everything, all the way down to the battalion level. So I was able to get a lens into the experience of the soldiers and really explore this idea of post-traumatic stress or what they termed it battle fatigue or just simply exhaustion and kind of examine the fall campaigns through the view of the 1st Infantry Division, which was in a very experienced outfit. They had fought in pretty much every major campaign on the Western Front during war. They had landed in Africa, they had landed in Sicily, they had led the way at Omaha Beach, and they would lead the way in Germany through Aachen and but you also had this mixture of replacements, many of whom by that time were young, inexperienced, weren't very well trained, and exploring those different perspectives were kind of unique. So that is just background on this project. And although six months of work, ultimately goes into one episode, which, you know, is about 40 minutes, I still think it's rewarding, and hopefully you'll gain a new perspective about Aachen, the World War II experience for many soldiers, and uh, yeah. In October of 1944, The town of Aachen was one of the most dangerous places in the world. American soldiers found themselves in one of the most vicious urban battles of the Second World War and one of the oldest cities in Europe. German soldiers defended this ancient city, which was the resting place of the first Holy Roman Empire, with the tenacity reflecting that of many German warriors of the past, such as Arminius, Frederick the Great, and Gebhard Blucher. Despite the city's extensive history, the modern brownstone buildings reminded New York Times reporter Drew Middleton of apartment blocks one might find in a bustling Manhattan. As American GIs move through the rubble going street by street, House by house and room by room, there was no shortage of ways to become a casualty. Snipers lurked along the rooftops. Machine gunners hid in the cellars and falling debris made it more dangerous. Panzer rounds, which seemed like flaming footballs, hurtled down the street with terrifying speed, sending U.S. tanks and vehicles scurrying back from where they came. The invaders then returned fire with a vengeance, using the biggest guns in the U.S. arsenal to blast the threat at point-blank range before infantry finished them off with bayonets, grenades, and flamethrowers. Once the firing stopped, they moved on to the next street to do it all over again. Even when there were brief lulls, it did not stop the never ending staccatos of German MG 42s from firing down the streets just to let the Americans know what awaited them, prompting one GI to yell, The sons of bitchin' bastards, the fucking fucking bastards, as he emptied the clip in his rifle up the street, if only to let the Germans know that he was there too. The staggering amount of rubble left by the fighting made identifying the street a lost cause. An intelligence officer observed the town, it was as dead as a Roman ruin. By the time the last holdouts of the German defenders fell, most of the town had been obliterated by U.S. artillery and bombs and citizens emerged from shelter to pillage whatever they could find. From this point on, militaries recognized urban warfare as the deadliest form of combat. The Battle of Aachen reveals how such attritional urban fighting led to higher rates of battle fatigue, regardless of the quality or origin of soldiers. Combat in the city environment was mentally and physically taxing, with soldiers having to climb stairs, cross streets, and clear rooms, all the while having to stay on the lookout, lookout for enemy shooters. The fighting on the outskirts of the Aachen was just as bad, with constant artillery fire and a human wave assault from the Germans. Research reveals that the U.S. Army attempted to address battle fatigue as a new and significant problem, but it was a difficult challenge due to the many constraints, including the condition being ignored by commanding officers or soldiers themselves. There was also a lack of understanding of its causes and effects, codes of masculinity, or just simply the demands of frontline battlefields. The U.S. Army 1st Infantry Division, known as the Big Red One, demonstrated the effectiveness of a group of citizen-soldiers in battle, showing ingenious innovation and courage, yet battle fatigue remained the constant problem. Historians always mention the Battle of Aachen, whether it's the larger examinations of the Western Front during World War II, or focusing on the fall campaigns, or even discussing the military impact of the battle fatigue in general. However, there is little scholarship on the military aspects of the battle itself. Robert Baumer's full account of the battle from late September until the surrender of town, which more or less brings it into one book, is useful, but is generally shallow in its analysis and doesn't generally focus on the impact of the soldiers themselves. Some historians, such as Stephen Ambrose, concluded that the Battle of Aachen was a wasted time and resources, tying down the U.S. First Army in a futile campaign to break through the Germany before the onset of winter. Most historians generally focus on the battle as an epic clash in an urban environment, something that was generally rare in the war in the American combat experience, but fail to integrate aspects such as battle fatigue and psychic battering that many of these men and soldiers withstood. These include John McManus's Grunts and Anthony Beaver, who dedicates a chapter on the the topic of his book about the Battle of the Bulge. The experience of different soldiers is also understudied, many of whom are either battle-tested veterans or raw recruits. Such a wide disparity is often pointed out, but not examined in relation to battle fatigue. What is also significant is the lack of mention of battle fatigue in the official reports and histories from the units that fought there, whereas the medical department gave incredibly detailed accounts and reports over the issue of battle fatigue in all of the campaigns during World War II. In some ways, the medical department and frontline units operated separately, creating challenges in addressing the problem both individually and as an institution. This paper complicates the military's discussion and popular memories of the Battle of Aachen by illuminating how individual American soldiers experienced combat firsthand. The battle resulted in an extraordinary number of battle fatigue cases, which Army leadership addressed by changing tactics and increasing the accessibility of quality food and provisions. Research in the archives of the First Division Museum in King Illinois, combined with the firsthand memoirs and other sources revealed the impact of this new kind of warfare on soldiers, both civilian conscripts and professionals. It challenges leadership to adapt to these changes circumstances and win battles, but also accommodate the escalating problem of battle fatigue among soldiers at the time, and long-term effects that soldiers had to deal with when they came home. The challenges of battle fatigue continue to evolve and present a unique challenge as militaries all across the world are still trying to find remedies to this day. The army was unprepared as any institution when the U.S. entered the war in 1941. Though there were exercises and certainly a broader shift in the years leading up to the war, it still certainly wasn't prepared to undertake the massive campaign that it was going to fight on multiple fronts and mythic feathers, which was an enormous undertaking. The ability of the army to go from 200,000 soldiers in 1941 to 8 million by more is quite remarkable. But the army during World War II was full of citizen soldiers They came from all parts of the country and all occupations ranging from the heartlands of Iowa and Nebraska to the boom towns of Denver and Los Angeles. Anticipating the negative impact of battle on such men, which they te- termed at the time as battle fatigue or simply exhaustion, The official history of World War II from the medical department stated that we had to relearn it all over again. We are again challenged to see whether this hard-on knowledge can now be consolidated and made sufficiently operative so that we can go on to observe still other facets of this distressing and complex field of human behavior. The nature of the interwar years and the withdrawal of the U.S. from broader foreign policy had hollowed out much of the infrastructure in the army, including the medical department, which had, that, which would be learned the hard way in the early campaigns of the war in Africa and Sicily. The improvement of technology had pointed to a new form of warfare, which the Germans perfected, which they named Blitzkrieg. But quickly, battlefields became similar to that of World War I, resulting in the same problems experienced by previous armies. Investing in morale, however, was limited to patriotic propaganda, regular mail, and visits from celebrities. There were a variety of definitions of battle fatigue during the war. This included psychiatric collapse, combat fatigue, or war neurosis. But the official history generally referred to anything regarding battle fatigue as exhaustion. This was because battle fatigue had such an array of symptoms, ranging from physical debilitations as well as emotional problems. The complexity of the issue led to a simplified definition. That simplification may have led commanders to underestimate the problem. The problem of eating, emotional problems, and other symptoms could simply be attributed to cowardice or lack of courage in the mind of commanders. All this is in stark contrast with the modern U.S. Army which is an all-volunteer force that has extensive support infrastructure to deal with battle fatigue both during deployments, after soldiers return home, and even after they are discharged. This does not mean the Army did not try to insult soldiers were fighting Trim, both physically and mentally, even back then. The 1st Battalion, 18th Infantry, reported in the first few days of October 1944 that they were able to accomplish two things. The troops were cleaned and rested, and the limited recreational facilities of a frontline division placed at the disposal of men. Though the report does not say what the frontline recreational facilities were, it is likely that would have been mail, hot food, and showers with warm water. All of these things show that the army was aware of how important morale was and how big a difference something as simple as a letter from a wife or a hot shower after weeks in a foxhole in cold weather could dramatically improve the morale of a soldier. The democratic nature of the U.S. Army and the culture from which these citizen-soldiers came from is also understudied. Despite the merits of fighting the war, both for the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor and the intrusive authoritarianism in Europe, there were still many parts of American society that wanted absolutely nothing to do with another war across the sea. This is one of the reasons why the U.S. did not become involved initially in the war. Even when it did, there was still partisanship within the government and people questioning the idea of fighting a war across the ocean. The U.S. and Britain, for that matter, could not throw their soldiers in the battle without regard for their soldiers, and instead relied on overwhelming firepower, whereas the Soviet Union literally threw wave upon wave of conscripts at the Germans, suffering massive casualties as a result. The way the U.S. and Britain fought the war reflected the democracies they were fighting for, with a particular understanding that dissent would rise if they were needlessly wasting lives. The 26th Infantry Regiment, for example, documented a bizarre incident right before the Battle of Aachen. The enemy had a ruse as much as success as the first. About 10 o'clock at night, the enemy at revealed the limits to which the Germans were ready to go in their propaganda efforts to slow up our attacks. Opposite a K and i company post, a German PA system was set up and some swing music played with up-to-minute selections of popular tunes played by such band as Benny Goodman, Artie Shaw, Duke Ellington's and sung by Francis Langford, Dina Shaw, and Martha Tilton. Then, in excellent English, the German announcer talked about the states and the good times we had back there. Every effort was made to induce homesickness to the listeners, to convince the listeners that the Allies were fighting a losing war. Russia will gain, the British will gain, and America will only debate the casualty list to show. New York City was being systemically reduced by the Luftwaffe, and other great American cities were already in ruins and it soon meant that it would be an excellent idea if the Americans let up on the shelling, and allowed everybody to have a good night's sleep. 3rd Battalion crews that fired at the German borders a concentrated barrage, which ended that broadcast. Reducing the enemy of morale was an important part of the war, which explains why the Allies dropped millions of leaflets while they bombed the Germans to try and force an early surrender. In turn, the Germans attempted to use attritional fighting around Aachen as a tool to demoralize the Americans. Morale and reasons for fighting the war also played in the democratic nature of the American War Effect. Although censorship was regularly applied, Casualties came up time and again over the course of the war. The Germans, on the other hand, were brainwashed by Nazi propaganda over a period of many years, to the point where many who fought at Aachen were assured victory in the war when everything told them otherwise. Before the battle started, the U.S. offered safe passage for any German soldiers wishing to surrender. Some of the Germans stated that when they had to make a daring escape, his officers were holding them at their positions at gunpoint, threatening to shoot anyone that tried to accept the offer of surrender. All of this shows how drastically different views the U.S. and Germany held on morale and battle fatigue. On the American side, soldiers needed to be motivated and coaxed in the fighting, while Germans would use force against their own troops with little regard for morale. Three years into the war, battle fatigue was a recognized condition but was not well managed. For example, there was no representation of a clinical psychologist on the surgeon general staff which oversaw medical policies throughout the war. The official history on neuropsychology from the war Critically stated, the official language of both published regulations and unpublished reports does not convey sufficiently the strength of the rejection of psychological problems in the Army from the very beginning. But as the US Army revived in Africa and in Italy, psychologists documented the direct relationship to the intensity of combat, modified by physical morale factors, and the importance of unit cohesion, both in preventing breakdown and enhancing combat effectiveness. There was a sophisticated study of battle fatigue going back to early as 1942, despite the challenges having to relearn much of what was discovered during the First World War. Psychologists in the medical department developed procedures to treat battle fatigue, which played important for the vital campaigns in France and Germany in 1944-45. Despite the recognition of problems surrounding soldiers in the combat, not all were keen to assess or even remedy the issue. Many institutions in general still perceive battle fatigue as a weakness and cowardice rather than a legitimate casualty of war. A well-documented incident of attitudes towards battle fatigue occurred in Sicily during the summer of 1943 when the commander of the U.S. Fifth Army, George Patton, slapped two soldiers who were in field hospitals suffering from battle fatigue, going as far as to call them cowards and yellow bastards. Patton was privately reprimanded, but never showed any remorse, saying to one of the soldiers he hit, I may have saved his soul, if he had one. That official attitude was not as pervasive as some are led to believe, but World War II inspired military institutions and psychologists to seriously examine post-traumatic stress in battle and to figure out how to build on the experiences learned from the First World War. Most experts of the era concluded that a soldier could last anywhere from 200 to 240 days in combat before experiencing battle fatigue, but psychologists observing the Western Front in 1944 concluded that soldiers could suffer battle fatigue as fast as 45 days. This was a new aspect of war, psychologists being a part of the army observing the front and treating battle fatigue cases, but they seemed to operate entirely on their own. Among the soldiers themselves, for example, the 16th Regiment Operation Officer from the 1st ID, Major Esten T. White, documented 16 cases of battle fatigue less than 24 hours into the Battle of Aachen. Though Major White does not specify why these soldiers were replacements or veterans, it is likely they were replacements as most studies concluded that soldiers without combat experience or little training were much more vulnerable to battle fatigue. The disparities between those away from the field and those in the battle could not have been more stark. Oftentimes, medics or more experienced soldiers took it upon themselves to escort soldiers showing signs of battle fatigue every year, even if they had not been wounded. This was in large part to get them removed from the battle, so they did not endanger the lives of other soldiers. The army did make a conscious effort to treat battle fatigue. Throughout the war, the army set up neuropsychology centers to rehabilitate soldiers suffering from battle fatigue. It was a highly structured program with hot showers, exercises, well-made food, and miscellaneous work activities. Historian Franklin Jones concluded that the most important lesson of World War II was the importance of group cohesion, not only in preventing breakdown, but also in producing effectiveness in combat. Yet in general, there was always an underlying clash between the medical department and commanders who believed battle fatigue was a result of cowardice or lack of masculinity rather than a serious problem that needed both short-term and long-term treatment. What is critical to understand in the broader context of the Western Front in 1944 that was that most U.S. forces did not have combat experience. And early studies from the campaigns in Africa and Sicily show how inexperienced troops were likely to suffer higher rates of battle fatigue. Three years into the war, the 1st Infantry Division was one of the exceptions. The unit had already distinguished itself in Africa and Sicily, becoming a tough and reliable outfit. But they faced their biggest challenge yet in Europe, leading the long planned invasion the France. Anthony Beaver noted from the f- report, before the invasion in Normandy that the U.S. First Division, known as the Big Red One, grumbled when yet picked again to lead the way in a beach assault, but his experience was badly needed. A major assessment report on May 8th had rated almost every other American formation allocated to the invasion as, quote, unsatisfactory. In addition to the first ID, there were only eight other divisions to that point that had seen combat in Africa, Sicily, and Italy. And only two other divisions, the 9th Infantry and the 2nd Armored Division, were allocated for the Normandy invasion, making their expertise paramount to the success of the invasion. This pattern remained for the rest of the war as they were selected to lead the breakout of Normandy at Operation Koba, and why were they selected to lead the charge in the Aachen? It was difficult to find a unit that had such quality leadership and experience pretty much at every command level, from the division commander, Clarence Art Humner, who had been with the division since it landed in North Africa, all the way down to the non-commissioned officers and the different companies. This was important, as studies during the war concluded that well-led and experienced unit did not suffer as many bad fatigue cases compared to those units that were, quote, new to combat. This made the 1st Infantry Division not just crucial to the invasion of Normandy, but to the morale of other units, who had the luxury of knowing that they had experience next to them on the line and knew what they were doing. After being hemmed in at Normandy for two months during the June in July and early August of 1944, Operation Cobra was the breakthrough operation that started the race across France. The speed in which the Allies moved ensured that the Germans could never set a new defensive line. The 1st Army entered Germany 233 days ahead of schedule, quickly stretching supplies to their absolute limit. 3rd Armored Division, for example, had approximately 70 functioning tanks out of an assigned 230. The advance across France was as rapid as any during the war, but brought a sense of naivety to many soldiers. Though they were successfully advancing, the farther away they became from their supplies and replacements. And because the Allied Air Force had destroyed much of the infrastructure throughout France and Belgium, much of it had to be rebuilt from scratch, which took a lot of time and effort. The 1st Division was not immune, and though they arrived at the outskirts of Aachen on September 12th, they were understrength and running low in supplies. Like the rest of the army, the 1st Division enjoyed their advance, leapfrogging town to town collecting food and souvenirs while encountering little resistance. By late September, the division was forced to stop along the German border due to a lack of supplies giving the German Vermont ample time to bring up reinforcements. Even the highest-ranking generals believed that the war would soon end. Army Chiefs of Staff, George Marshall, stated during the visit to France in the fall, we have them licked. All they have is a thin shell, and we break that, they are finished. Ralph Gordon, who served in the first ID wrote of the race across France, the days that we drove across France were as enjoyable as any as combat can be. The last seven days of August, we traveled over 300 kilometers across northern France. The company met little resistance as the Jerrys were fleeing towards the fatherland. From the highest ranking generals down to the frontline soldiers, everyone had a sense the war could be won by Christmas and the worst fighting was behind him. However, the advance became bogged down as roads turned into the mud because of the rain and the supply system became completely overstretched. Historian S.B. Mason noted of this development, it was depressing for the veterans too, for the exhilarating success of the rapid jumps after the St. Lowe breakthrough and the astonishing success of the fortnight previously on the Road to Mons had dimmed the painful memory of our losses in Normandy. Any happiness that the American soldiers felt about the hard fighting success in Normandy was quickly lost as they realized the rejuvenated Germans were waiting for them and the fighting would likely be the slow attritional warfare that had only occurred a month earlier in Normandy. By October of 1944, the opportunity to win the war before Christmas decreased rapidly as Operation Market Garden, a British plan that crossed the Rhine River using airborne divisions, failed and at the same time took vital resources away from the U.S. armies facing the German border. From early September to October, the first idea remained relatively static along the line, receiving supplies and replacements. The quality of those replacements, however, was suspect at best. One warrant officer exclaimed, we had to take them over behind a hill right in the middle of action and teach them how to load their rifles. Although replacements arriving during the Battle of Normandy were of adequate training, the replacements arriving to the 1st Infantry Division during the Battle of Aachen had very little training or were trained for entirely different jobs. Many men with specialist roles such as mortarmen or machine gunners arrived having never even seen their weapons before, let alone firing or loading them. The U.S. Army was good at plugging men in the roles, but gave little thought in how effective they might be once they arrived. Nothing illustrated this problem more than the 65th Infantry Division, as historian Rick Atkinson documented. Frantic efforts were made to muster more riflemen in the battle. The Army had called privates and NCOs from 40 divisions while they were still training in the United States. 17 of those divisions had lost two-thirds of their infantry privates and countless junior officers who were sent overseas as individual replacements while new recruits filled the ranks behind them. Not only were original divisions devastated by the turnover, the 65th Division reported that some platoons had churned through as many as 16 platoon leaders before even leaving the United States. While it was one thing for units trained in the United States to experience this type of turnover, it was another for units actually on the front line. Unlike the British Army, which would pull entire divisions off the line for training and time for replacements that get acquainted with their fellow soldiers, replacements in the U.S. Army were shipped directly to units on the front line. This was because the U.S. Army had not allocated enough trained infantry for keeping frontline units up to strength. This was part of a broader calculation to keep many of the skilled workers in the factories and businesses that were vital to the war effort. Of the 91 division raised for the war, 89 of them saw combat at some point in the Pacific and European theater, leaving very little room for flexibility. The only two that did Nazi combat were the 98th Infantry Division, which was on garrison duty in Hawaii, and the 13th Airborne Division, which was designated for the invasion of Japan right before the war ended. Obviously, the intensity of fighting was different depending on when the unit arrived. The 1st Division, for example, participated in every major campaign on the Western Front, spending 443 days in combat, while units such as the 16th and 20th Armored Division spent less than a week on the line during the war. There was a direct correlation between manpower and battle fatigue. The official history on neuropsychology in World War II repeatedly pointed out how commanders believed that the manpower pool was, quote, unlimited and did not account for so many battle fatigue casualties. Commanders complained about the role of neuropsychologists during the war because they believed too many men were being admitted as battle fatigue cases. This was in stark contrast to many other nations during the war. For example, the Germans raised an astounding 315 divisions while the Soviets had an enormous 550 at one point or another. But this all came at the cost of pulling men out of the factories, which subsequently lowered the Germans' ability to produce weapons and material as they turned to slave labor and low-skilled workers. Historian Maurice Matloff points this out. From the very beginning, American manpower calculations were closely correlated with the needs of the war industry. These moves were both described as a calculated risk and an immense gamble. In hindsight, This decision was very successful. The U.S. was able to fight in two different theaters while also supplying the majority of its allies with food, supplies, and weapons. Still even, this left very room for air and a manpower pool for the U.S. that was considerably smaller than many other nations fighting in the war. It also forced the army to keep men in the line for months on end, even if it, many had reached the end of their emotional physical capacity, simply because they did not have someone to replace him. A division might have 20,000 men, but only 5,500 were frontline infantrymen, which took a disproportionate amount of the casualties. This created a cycle in which men were shuffled directly into the front line to replace those men. Corporal Ralph Gordon, who served in the 16th Infantry Regiment of the 1st ID, observed the process firsthand while he was at Aachen. Replacements came in very fast by way around the hill, as the company had to be kept at full strength while defending the crucifix. And It is really tough for a replacement to join an outfit like ours while they are on the line. As soon as a replacement reported to the command post, he was assigned to a platoon and put straight in the hole in the front lines. It must have been hard not knowing who was around him or where the Jerrys were. He usually got the privilege of occupying a hole where a GI was just hit and not knowing anyone around him. He must feel very much alone and scared. Nonetheless, the replacements continued to pour in while the company was in this position. Joining a unit as experienced and tough as the first ID would have been a huge challenge for anyone, let alone soldiers who had very little training. Replacements quickly became veterans if they managed to last more than a few days without becoming a casualty. But the bonds that have been formed are hard to describe, even if men were new to the unit. In the midst of the Battle of Dawson's Ridge near Aachen, Captain Dawson told a reporter how two men had been wounded in mid-September had gone AWOL, absent without leave, from the hospital, hitchhiking their way to Aachen to report for duty out of concern for their buddies who were up on the ridge. Urban warfare only intensified these issues with replacement soldiers' morale. The combination of experienced new troops and dangers of vermic combat set the stage for real difficulty in Aachen. Despite the advantages in firepower and experienced leadership at Aachen, Helmus and Russell noted that the urban battle is often up and close and personal one. Many targets are within a 50-meter range. Often, advancing forces must clear individual buildings that can contain multiple floors of enemies. Friendly forces that enter each room may force the barrel of an enemy's soldiers or a cowling civilian or a comrade-in-arms. These soldiers will have split-second decisions where they are not to engage. Enemy forces masked in civilian clothes also complicate this decision even further. <laughs> An urban setting was a combat environment in which you could be completely safe in one place and five feet away be in absolute danger. For example, as the 26th Infantry reported, adding to the difficulties was the clever use of the city sewer system by the Germans. A group of the enemy work along the passageways in the sewer and then they appear in the areas they were thought to be cleared. Each manhole had to be located, grenades thrown, and the sewers thoroughly blocked and covered. No doubt that added to the challenge of trying to clear city blocks as each manhole had to be examined before being cleared. And even then, there was never a sure thing as German soldiers could easily flank American soldiers through houses or side streets. By the fall of 1944, many Americans had seen combat. And something seemed to have changed after the baptism of fire. The citizen soldiers that arrived on the beaches of Normandy were well-trained but had no experience and even struggled with the prospect of killing other people. But by the time the Americans arrived at the German border after suffering egregious losses in Normandy, all of that quickly went out the window. An American sergeant reported that our men too appear to fully requisite psychological attitude towards battle. They are killers. They hate Germans and think nothing of killing them. Another soldier told New York Times reporter Drew Middleton when referring to the Germans, All of them guys are alike. Fucking tough bastards. I'd like to shoot them all. All of them from Hitler on down. All of them. After three years of fighting along the periphery of the German Empire, first in Africa, then Sicily, and in France, this was the first time the GIs had reached Germany itself. Many American soldiers had no compunction about potential civilian casualties or destroying a German city. The document containing the plea for surrender lobbed into the city via artillery explicitly stated that if the military and party leaders insist on further sacrifice, we have no further course but to destroy your city. In one incident on October 8th, engineers attached to the 26th Infantry Regiment packed an abandoned car full of explosives scribbling V-3, which was a mockery of the German rocket program which produced the V-1 and V-2. They proceeded to roll it down the street into German lines, resulting in a tremendous explosion. It did little damage much to the disappointment of the engineers, but nonetheless was applauded by their fellow soldiers for blowing up a few buildings. Even the smallest of actions could go a long way to boosting the morale of soldiers who had so many challenges in an urban environment, including civilians. In terms of the civilian population, the reality was that no one really knew how many German civilians were left in the city. Intelligence from the 1st Division Artillery estimated that there were 6,000 civilians left in the city, while the 16th Infantry Regiment Intelligence Section guessed that there were 1,000 civilians in the city itself and 20,000 civilians in the suburbs. Though one would assume the infantrymen on the front line would have a better estimation than the artillery who were situated miles behind the front line, the credibility of German prisoners of war civilians were taken with a grain of salt. General Huebner went out of his way to order that any military age meal in Aachen would be treated as a prisoner of war regardless of whether or not they were in uniform. It certainly was not the same as weeks earlier where the Americans were welcomed in the French and Belgian towns as liberators. From a strategic perspective, urban fighting was not that common, and the U.S. did not have much training or know-how to meet the problem. It was mostly by doctrinal design that the Army avoided urban battles because they favored the defender and casualties would be high. Historian Christopher Gable reported that, at best, they had received word-of-mouth accounts of urban fighting conducted by other units, and that news was far from reassuring. Those accounts would have likely come from the 2nd and 8th Infantry Divisions, which engaged in a month-and-a-half-long siege of the port city of Brest in Brittany during the months of August and September. While most American soldiers in the 1st Infantry Division were galloping east to Germany, these divisions had tied down in a bitter urban battle. Every street and house in Brest was heavily fortified. The battle cost 8th Corps almost 10,000 casualties. Why this did not persuade American commanders to avoid urban battles is perplexing. Considering the Battle of Aachen would only occur a month later and mimicked what these divisions had encountered, the reality was that the geography resulted in the battle. The only two ways for large mechanized armies to invade Germany was north via the Northern European plain, which had already failed through Operation Market Garden, or through the woody hilly area around Aachen, which more or less would give a direct route into the heart of Germany and the industrial area around the Ruhr. Starting on October 11. After Germans refused the ultimatum, the first ID stayed true to its promise and began the battle with a massive artillery and bombing runs. The 26th Infantry Regiment fought in the city itself while the 16th and 18th were east of the city attempting to cut off the only road leading the Aachen, as well as the series of hills and ridges that overlooked the town. While the 26th advanced into the urban environment, the 16th and 18th quickly became bogged down in a hilly wooded terrain dominated by three German strong points, Observatory, Salvador, and Crucifix Hills. They had received replacements and supplies were slowly getting to the front. Most companies were described as, quote, chronically understrength, as much as 70% of the infantrymen in the first ID were replacements. They made up those deficiencies with very experienced officers and non-commissioned officers, many of whom had been wounded in previous battles. One strength of the U.S. Army in World War II was its ability to improvise on the fly. What developed was a strategy by Colonel John F.R. Seitz, who was a veteran of Africa, Sicily, and it would quickly be nicknamed "Knock 'em Down by the GIs. The strategy was for two assault battalions from the 26th Infantry Regiment to blast their way forward using the overwhelming firepower of the American war machine. The two men leading the battalions were Lieutenant Colonel Daryl Daniel, who was leading the 2nd Battalion, and Lieutenant Colonel John Corley, who was leading the 3rd Battalion. Both men were graduates of West Point and had led companies in Africa and Sicily. Corley himself had earned a silver star for heroism only two days after he landed in Africa. These men were called quality professionals who had displayed strong leadership and were capable of solving problems. These officers were maybe the most important soldiers in the U.S. Army in the fall of 1944. They were professionally trained men who had led men in combat at a smaller level and certainly experienced the pain and loss that most leaders at higher command levels did not know. At a time when most units were understrength, dealing with weather, and running low on supplies, quality leadership was an important factor, and their planning and leadership no doubt contributed to the victory at Auckland. Despite the increase in battle fatigue cases, the battle have gone on much longer and been much worse if not for their leadership. Another urban warfare which Canadian troops learned the hard way was at the Battle of Artona in Italy in December 1943, and that was that moving through buildings rather than going down the street, was much safer. Bullets could skip off walls, sidewalks could be mined, and the doors in the buildings could be booby-trapped. Inspired by what Canadian soldiers nicknamed Mouse Holding, American squads and platoons would blow a hole in the wall to enter the next building. It took the Germans by surprise and limited the amount of time that they would have to spend on the streets, which would have been pre-sighted by machine guns well in advance. But this presented another challenger trying to keep track of what was going on. Though the experience was limited, there were lessons that could be learned that could save lives. Individual squads and multitudes in Aachen were isolated to whatever building or street they were fighting on, making it difficult to know if the Germans still held buildings adjacent to them or if their buddies were right there with them. To overcome these deficiencies, Daniel and Corley used Daly's phase lines to keep the advance as coherent as possible. Whenever they reached these phase lines, they paused and allowed other units to finish clearing other sectors. This also informed artillerymen behind the front lines where they could drop artillery, which could be especially dangerous in an urban environment where friendlies and hostiles could be mixed up all over the place. Infantrymen periodically fired white flares in the air, signaled to the artillery, quote, here we are, to prevent those sorts of things. There was careful consideration when it came to firing artillery and dropping bombs and friendly soldiers. It could be devastating for morale and make soldiers more passive, which could get even more soldiers killed. Aachen was a microcosm of the American soldiers' abilities to bring the massive amount of firepower to battle. During the month of October alone... The 33rd Field Artillery Battalion attached to the 1st ID would have fired more than 19,569 rounds, averaging anywhere from 20 to 50 fire missions a day during the heaviest days of the battle despite ammunition shortages throughout the 12th Army Group. There were no restrictions on using weapons or what the military would call today a free fire zone, allowing total discretion for soldiers to use whatever means necessary to take the town. The biggest guns in the U.S. arsenal, the 155mm, which was usually placed on a mortar carriage, became a giant battering ram, brought up to blast buildings at point-blank range before infantry would go in with flamethrowers, grenades, and bayonets. One tank spent all day firing 64 rounds at point-blank range to destroy nine buildings in a row along the block. Despite their massive firepower, the Americans were still outnumbered 3 to one, forcing Daniel and Curley to use their infantry sparingly. For example, Corley’s third battalion only had one platoon as reserve if anything went sideways. Any fruitless losses could be devastating as they simply could not have the men to make up for their mistakes. Quality leadership was important for the overall morale and performance of units. Throughout the week of October thirteenth through twenty one, the twenty sixth regiment methodically clawed its way through the city. Most German commanders concluded that the town was lost and shifted their focus towards throwing off the 16th and 18th Regiment fighting along the periphery of the Aachen. If they could force them off, the 26th Regiment might be forced to withdraw for fear of being surrounded. What followed was some of the worst fighting the war the 18th Regiment stated that they were only able to hold off wave after wave of German assault with blood, iron, and sheer guts. Baker Company from the 2nd Battalion of the 18th Regiment was pulled off the line after being described as beginning to show signs of weariness. Though the after-action report does not specify what constituted these signs, it is clear that leaders in the battalion knew that this sort of fighting could quickly lead to a loss of morale and made efforts to relieve units engaged in this type of combat. Throughout these battles, the overwhelming firepower of the Americans was on full display, and they were able to stop German assaults dead in their tracks. The Battle of Aachen was not a decisive battle. Rather, an ensure the war would drag on beyond Christmas. Any initiative the Allies had held was lost in delays at bridges across the Rhine, in the rubble of Aachen, or in the forests of the Hurken. Some have argued that Aachen was a futile battle, that the town could have been bypassed or besieged without having to clear it, Still leaving it would have been a thorn in the side of the American for a month if they tried to besiege the town. For example, some of the port towns the Allies bypassed during the race across France would hold out till the end of the war. But the planning and leadership led to a flawless execution and a casualty rate that was significantly lower than one might expect in an urban battle. Just like their ancestors on the battlefields of York Taos or Mayuse or the Argonne, the GIs fought an incredible battle against incredible odds and found a way to come out on top. The symbolism of being the first unit to capture an important German city was an important banner for the 26th Infantry Regiment and the division as a whole. However, taking Aachen came at a tremendous cost. The division officially documented 2,385 total casualties during the month of October 1944. It was the costly month of the entire war for the division. Battle fatigue cases totaled 279 meaning the rate of battle fatigue for October was around almost 20% based off these statistics, but almost certainly was much higher focused exclusively on infantrymen and leaving out non-combat injuries such as sickness or accidents. Some historians point out of Aachen, daily rates of combat exhaustion indicate that the period of city fighting and the ratio of stress casualties to those wounded in action was 30 for every 100, a value which was considerably higher than the typical 20% maintained throughout most of the division's World War II history. The official history from the medical department reported that there were two reasons for this. Many of the casualties, a large percentage were replacements, showed a very low tolerance for the emotional stress of return to combat duty. Also, a number of previously wounded soldiers discovered upon return to combat duty that they, quote, were not able to take in anymore. Second, Incident to the long continued action for the five months, with a proportionate few relief periods, an increased number of previously excellent veteran combat soldiers appeared to be emotionally, quote, burned out and offered poor prognosis for duty without prolonged rehabilitation, which was not available within a field army. The combination of extended fighting for battle hardened soldiers, as well as a little training for replacements, resulted in almost 10% more battle fatigue cases during the month of October. And it's also clear that the close proximity of the fighting, both inside and outside of the city, led to higher rates of battle fatigue, both for the intensity and longevity. In previous battles in Africa, Sicily, and Normandy, there were often days between major battles with sporadic firefights and patrols in between, but there was much rest. But at Aachen, the combat was both intense and continuous. The soldiers in the city had the experience of distress of having to comb through every inch of the city to root out the enemy, while fellow soldiers outside the city came under attack after attack from the dug-in Germans. When the Germans were not attacking them, the Luftwaffe were dropping artillery and mortars when there were little cover. For the men of the 1st ID, the war continued, and only a few weeks later, they would lead to the assault into the Hurricane Forest. They would later lead the defense during the Battle of Bulge and charge their way across the Rhine. By May of 1945, when the war on the Western Front was winding down, there were very few men who had managed to survive from the landing of D-Day to the end of the war. One of the few men had, who did, Ralph Gordon, suffered a measurable tragedy when he found out his best friend Ben was killed April 16th, 1945, three weeks before the war in Europe. Ben had served in continuously from the landing on June 6th up until April 16th without any rest. Gordon described this experience, tears came to my eyes as I remember the army motto, ours is not the wonder why, ours is but to do or die. How true was that? Here was a fellow that went through so much, and for what? so that the army could continue to drive home on and on until he was killed. Why wasn't he taken off the line after so many days of combat? Oh yes, he was essential. Well, how essential is he now? Yes, his death I blame on the U.S. Army, because they didn't want to know when a man had enough. Their motto was to drive him until he can't be driven anymore. There are plenty of fellows sitting back in the rear on their asses during the whole war with nice desk jobs. They're the ones that should have come up here to relieve Ben. A fellow's luck can't last forever, and sooner or later, you're bound to get it. Ben did just that. Although this was not necessarily about the Battle of Aachen, Gordon clearly illustrates how the longevity of the war took such a toll on their men. Not even weeks after the war came to an end, men who had served in Normandy still found themselves in battles with tragic consequences. Gordon's attitude reflected resentment towards an institution that he had given so much for, which was often overlooked in favor of the official histories to depict an idealist and heroic account of the war. Men who suffered from battle fatigue were excluded from the story on the surface, despite the U.S. Army investigations and how to deal with it both on the battlefield at Aachen and after the war. World War II was the most destructive conflict the world has ever seen. As time goes on, its memory will likely fade as brave men and women who served a robbing us of their experience. The lies both during and after the war continue to offer perspective on the reality of combat and the American participation in a conflict to rid the world of tyranny. Aachen isn't a footnote in a war that was fought in every corner of the globe, but is a microcosm of the courage of the American soldier, Captain Joe Dawson best summarizes the Battle of Aachen Maybe the entire experience of World War II stating that we find bitterness of the struggle, which brings the whole thing into sharp reality with attrition ever present. There's no solace or comfort in this other than the most fervent prayer our enemies will feel the impact so deeply that never again will this means be sought to impose their will on the world. The ridge on which Dawson's company fought was officially named Dawson's Ridge for his leadership. Of the 136 men in Dawson's George Company that trudged up on the ridge, 114 became casualties. That is a casualty rate of 83%. Dawson was sent to the rear after five months of continuous combat, showing that even the best soldiers were not immune from the emotional and physical exhaustion of combat. After time rehabilitating the States, Dawson returned to his company right when the war ended. Despite the physical pain and emotional toll, Dawson was still keen on seeing his comrades. Many veterans carried the scars of battle, both visible and invisible, psychological and physical, and silence for decades. Few in the United States understood the horrors they had experienced, and many were keen to move on. That meant that reunions were the only time to confine in fellow soldiers of their struggles. Often, if you talk to a son or daughter whose parents served, the chances are they rarely talked about the war. In large part, this is why the heroic narrative which took the form of Hollywood movies and portrayals that were very heroic lasted for so long. Since the public was often shielded from the reality of it, only near the end of their lives did many soldiers begin to open up, tell relatives, and get their experiences in the writing in the permanent memory, such as Ralph Gordon, who, with the help of his son, put it into writing just before his death in 2010. Battle fatigue does not take away from the cor- courage and bravery of many young men and women who served, rather, it only reinforces it. That is true both in past and current conflicts. World War II will continue to hold an important place in American history, but will likely change as time goes on as major events occur. Hawken is a footnote in the grand scheme of World War II history, but is an important example of the individual cost of war. Battle fatigue is a problem that has always existed in war, and as long as war continues, armies will continue to address the problem of fatigue in battle. So I hope you enjoyed... That reading or story, I guess whatever you want to call it. I hope it was maybe a change of pace from the interviews, which again I always enjoy. But I also think it's good to switch things up and do things a little differently. Uh, I was listening to Against the Odds, which is a episode or which is a series that's sort of again, as I mentioned earlier, kind of this storytelling series, and it focus on the cave rescue of the children in Thailand, the scuba diver and someone who does scuba diving is super cool. And then, you know, as I was listening, I was like, wow, I wouldn't be cool to kind of do a story like this or try and do something. And again, it sort of fell into my lap just because I just happened to finish my thesis. And I was sort of in between episodes trying to figure out what to do next, just because I had finished the five-part series on the US-China relationship and wanted to get back into history and all of that. But again, I think really examining and really parsing through this particular period and the war in general, again, I think my biggest takeaway was that the greatest generation really I think, carried the weight of their experiences, even though I don't think we necessarily don't see that in a way that maybe older people do. Again, I can only speak to someone who was born in 1999 and 22. I don't know very many World War II veterans are still alive. And just as those people depart, those experiences become more and more distant, just as much as, the, for example, the First World War. That seems like a lifetime ago, I think. But in reality, that was only 100 years ago. So, and again, I think there was just this, you know, after the war, this broader effort for the majority of Americans who didn't serve to just move on and say, you know, the war was done. And there were lots of good things like the GI Bill and things that I think spurred a lot of economic growth and uplifting of people. But again, I think, at least from the post traumatic stress, as I mentioned earlier, and in the, and in, And the story that, again, if you talk to a parent or someone who had a parent who served, you know, there's a really good chance that they didn't talk about it. And I remember this is way back, our fifth episode when we interviewed James Bradley, he sort of briefly mentioned that same thing. His dad had served on Iwo Jima and played a big role in the flag raising, which produced one of the most famous photos of the war. And he didn't talk about it until only a few years before his death. Like never told Mr. Bradley, never told the rest of his family. It just, again, something that happened. And again, I always kind of wonder what stories don't get told either because unfortunately, you know, veterans pass away before they can get into the writing or they just don't want to talk about it. And again, I think even to this day now with our term post-traumatic stress and how we still, we know a lot more about it, but we still don't a lot. There's post-traumatic stress from combat, but there's also post-traumatic stress from a lot of other things, from, again, traumatic events such as an accident or anything like that. You know, when it comes to psychology, it's a field that has made tremendous strides, but is also very in its beginnings. I mean, I think, as I also mentioned, post-traumatic stress is a problem that all militaries are going to have to deal with. You can almost go back all the way to ancient Greece where, you know, there were poems about Achilles and that sort of era of warriors, like subtly hinting at suffering from battle fatigue, that they're fighting the last fight so they don't have to do it anymore. And I not to go much on a too much on a tangent, but again, I think those things exist throughout history. But again, obviously, as you get closer and closer, there's a lot more sources. So again, not to rant too much, but again, I think Aachen was kind of a microcosm of a war that, again, was fought in every part of the globe. It was a war that was fought on a scale that was even bigger than the First World War. And then again, it was only a small battle in the grand scheme of things, but I think showed the tremendous cost of war. And I think that's something to keep in mind, even as World War II veterans continue to leave us and continue to, as that memory sort of fades. So I hope you enjoyed the episode, something a little different, and we'll be back next week. If you have reached this point in the podcast, you are at the end. And thank you for listening all the way through. As always, follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on social media at History Does You on Instagram or Facebook to keep up with new episodes, giveaways, and the chance to ask questions of your own to our guests. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts and enjoy what we do, please give us a review and share it with your friends. Thanks again.